This is Friday Night Frights, brought to you by Starburst Magazine. Hello and welcome to Friday Night Frights, the weekly horror podcast from Starburst Magazine. I'm John Tolson and my guest tonight is screenwriter and author Stephen Volk. The programme you're about to watch is a unique live investigation of the supernatural. It contains material which some viewers may find to be disturbing. In 1992, the TV programme Ghost Watch hit the headlines after an estimated 30,000 viewers called the BBC to complain about the show. Some thought it was too disturbing, and others actually believed the events to be true. To mark the 20-year anniversary, a new documentary, Ghost Watch Behind the Curtains, was released this March. The man behind Ghost Watch is Stephen Volk, a screenwriter and author, and one of the most important names in British Gothic horror. His work for the big screen includes screenplays for Ken Russell and William Friedkin, and he's the creator of the hit TV show Afterlife. With this year the anniversary of the birth of Peter Cushing, Stephen has published a new novella, Whitstable, about a fictionalised Peter Cushing, drawn into a web of intrigue by a boy who believes his stepfather is a vampire. First of all, let's talk a little bit about the Ghost Watch documentary, um, yeah, sure. which, which is coming out. So, what, what was the what's the occasion then for for the well, issue really of this documentary? Was, um, um, uh, how can I start this? I think about um, I think about five year, years ago, maybe even longer than that. I was at a screening of Ghost Watch in the Watershed in Bristol, um, and it was a very well attended. Uh, affair and went down quite well yeah. and after it um a guy came up to me called richard lorden um who who uh professed to be a you know a fan of the show um and was very um kind of apologetic to step forward but wanted to talk to me a bit more about it to the extent that he missed his train and had to stay in bristol mm. but anyway that was my first encounter with richard who went on to direct this documentary um and it was really a um how can I say, a labor of love, but more of a kind of obsession of his in that um, he was kind of desperate to know, you know, all the ins and outs and the making of it and the uh, background to um, uh, why it got made and how we wanted to, um, you know, our intention in making it. Um, And he became a, a big fan in a way that wasn't at all kind of intrusive, but just one of these great people that, writers like myself are very, very um, grateful for, who mm. are in the background, you know, cultivating a lot of interest and, um, uh, you know, study in a way of work that you come up with. Um, and um, so he was beavering away in the background, really wanting uh, for the 20th anniversary, ideally to re-release Ghostwatch on DVD with a kind of second disc uh, of a making of documentary that was his dream to include all the things like uh, the bite back program and all these kind of things he wanted a kind of encyclopedic kind of record of the whole thing yeah. um, that was his intention um, and 
he more or less pulled that off in terms of making the documentary. I mean, he went, he was, he went around houses very many times approaching broadcasters to kind of commission a program. And in the end, I think he felt it was such a, a drag to actually get someone um, in, in the conventional networks to get behind this project because either A, they, you know, he'd be sitting around the table and they simply hadn't heard of it or they didn't think it was for them and, you know, the usual thing you get from commissioning editors but kind of more so and he got more and more disillusioned with that but in the end, he really wanted to, um, for the 20th anniversary, um, just for his own um, edification and enjoyment, record interviews with the people involved, like myself, like Leslie Manning, the director, like Parkinson and the the, the main cast. Yeah. He, he kind of wanted this as a point of record, you know. Um, and uh, below me, he did manage to pull it off and, and pin down these people over the last two years or so. Um, managed to get interviews out of them. You know, Richard Brooke, the executive um, producer, Ruth Baumgarten, the producer, um, various other people, um, very kindly gave of their time to be interviewed by Richard. And um, as I say, I think he did a brilliant job of of, of piecing it together. And um, I think, I, I mean, I you know, not many people know more about Ghostwatch than me being <laughs> in the centre of it. Yeah. But I was pleasantly surprised that there was an awful lot there that I didn't know about. And um, it also rather nicely, instead of just being a making of, is also a kind of aftermath and reappraised mm in terms of people like uh, Kim Newman talking about it and uh, um, uh, Andy Nyman, you know, who's famous from doing, um, uh, you know, Darren Brown shows and also, you know, ghost stories at the Lyric Hammersmith and in the West End, um, who's always been a fan of the show. So it, in addition to just saying this happened 20 years ago in uh, 1992, it was also people saying, well, where does this fit in the kind of history of scary TV and the history yeah. of both? like and and where do we place this you know what do we you know what do we make of it which I, which i think was equally important to just uh you know describing what happened mm -hmm. i mean because the well the program's become almost a kind of a sociological phenomenon really hasn't it <laughs> but i just, <laughs> I, 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 the, just um, I, I bumped into a um uh uh a kind of um, uh, art history uh, lecturer once, mm. or media studies, sorry, I, I was gr grasping for that phrase, media studies um, uh, lecturer once, and he, he said at the time that hardly a year goes by where someone doesn't decide to do it for their final year thesis because it's kind of a, it's handed to you on a plate as a kind of analysis of, of TV ripe for kind of dismantling, you know. So uh, I was amused by that. And also, I think in terms of the the industry itself, we can see things like paranormal activity kind of stemming from, yeah, possibly I, I, stemming I mean, from was, that. Yeah, I, I mean, I was quite pleased to see that R.N. Pelly, the director of paranormal activity, actually said in an interview. Well, it wasn't ex exactly an interview; it was in Time Out. He was asked to give. Um, uh, a few suggestions for what people should put on their video shelf, you know, on their DVD collection that that aren't very available. And one of the things he he mentioned was Ghostwatch. So that immediately nailed it as an as an influence on yeah. paranormal activity. Excellent. Um, uh, I mean, I mean, I must say, you know, the availability of camcorders to each and every one of us has, uh, you know, dictated that that kind of what used to be called cinema verite is mm. now in the hands of literally everybody. So yeah. that kind of or similitude of, of, of catching something with found footage, it, you know, 
would have been possibly inevitable without uh, Ghostwatch. But there, there are certainly echoes of Ghostwatch in, in a lot of um, things that have been seen since. Absolutely. I mean, now, in terms of thinking of it as a, as a phenomenon now... Um, but looking back at it, looking back at it um, at the time, what what was your intention with the program? I mean, I suppose I suppose at the time the only thing that we'd really had as frame of reference was the Orson Welles phenomenon with the the War of the Worlds broadcast. Yeah. I must admit, we did early on when when I first pitched it to the producer, I could see that she her eyes lit up and she immediately saw it as a potential kind of Orson mm-hmm. Welles. Um, kind of event but having said that I always say that we never actually talked about it in terms of being a hoax I mean the first time I read the word hoax in reference to Ghostwatch was the day after it was transmitted it was not a word that we that we kind of used in discussions we were in the drama department we were making a drama program uh, in the way really that you'd make any other kind of drama except it it wasn't like any other kind of drama because it was pretending to be something else. Um, but it wasn't, um, you know, the BBC would not, um, you know, empty their coffers to make a, a screen one special for something that was just a Halloween gag. You know, we mm. had to, and we wanted to justify it as a piece of drama. Um, but we did um, subtextually know that there was a potential kind of Orson Welles element to it. I mean, my my intentions, I always say, were twofold. One was to create a good old-fashioned ghost story for television in the way that I enjoyed the M.R. James adaptations, in the way that I adored the Nigel Neal, the Stone Tape. Mm. Um, and I thought there was a potential, because nothing had been done for years, really, yeah. uh, on, on BBC One, certainly. Um and I thought it, it, it was just recreating that excitement I had for that kind of supernatural TV. That was partly my intention. But as soon as, as soon as the notion occurred to do something as if it was really happening, um, the possibilities opened up for it also to be a kind of um, kind of critique of television, a kind of mm. satire of television. So. Uh, I, we all knew that that was going on at the same time as we were making what was hopefully a scary program. And, and, and the wonderful thing about that was that as it evolved, you could do both things at the same time. You could yeah. play with the techniques of television and satirize them and say how ridiculous this is and cheesy. But also it, it kind of added to the, to, the, to the elements that needed to work as a scary story. You know, the idea that um, you have a well-known TV couple... Um, you know, that we identify with because we feel they're almost part of our family is a kind of critique of TV, but it also works for the horror film element because we then separate them and one's in the haunted house and one can't save them, you know? So there are an awful lot of enjoyable things where both the satire and the uh, ghost story element play off each other because basically I think they were both saying, both the satirical element and the ghost story element were saying the same thing, which is what do you trust? Do you trust the expert? Do you trust what, what's, what you're being told? Do you even trust what you see? You know, I mean, I think ghost stories are often about do you trust what you see? But also as a critique of the media, it's also about who do you believe? You know, do you trust what you're being told? So mm. it, it, thematically, the two things segued nicely together. Yeah. I mean, as you were saying about the critique of the media, I mean, one, one of the unfortunate things about Ghostwatch is it, it kind of appeared at a time when um, 
well, the Jamie Bulger case happened, didn't it? And uh, David Alton, the Liberal MP, started to lobby for stricter controls on video censorship. And what do you make now, looking back on it, of the controversy that sort of Ghost Watch was caught up in at that time? Um, I, I don't. I don't actually. The the the, um, the connection with what you just said, I, I wasn't really aware of it at mm. the time. But but obviously the. Um, the, the the kind of uproar of headsmas wrote at the BBC and this shouldn't be allowed. I mean, mm. it was very, uh, I think, socially, sociologically and psychologically interesting mm. the reactions of people because, I mean, I remember when we had that uh, Sue Lawley bite back program and the audience were there. Um, I wasn't allowed on that program because not being a BBC employee, they were worried that I I could say whatever I like. <laughs> the party line so as a freelance i wasn't allowed the producer yeah stuck the show um but the audience had a very peculiar reaction they'd uh, they'd kind of shake their fists at the producer say it shouldn't be allowed you know i thought this was true we don't expect this of the bbc and then almost in the same breath they'd say oh we thought it was a good program though but it shouldn't be allowed um uh, it was a very peculiar kind of reaction to it and i think mm. a lot of the adverse reaction was of course because it was a BBC program and yeah. BBC name and brand is, is is something specific and noble and important and in a way it was perfect to do something subversive at the BBC on BBC One um, because it's anti it's anti yeah. that you you know they they televise national events you tr- you trust them which is exactly the place you sh- you should do something which is about trust. Um, I mean, someone said to me, "Would what do you think if you'd have done it at Channel 4? And I I kind of said, well, we may or may not have had an easier ride. That, that That's not, not knowable. But I think the difference would have been that the BBC, it was kind of anti-BBC, but if Channel 4 would have been a kind of rather disreputable kind of uncle. So they have, you know, Channel 4 has a reputation for doing things slightly anarchic and off the wall anyway. So in a funny kind of way, I think it was more anarchic coming from BBC. Mm. Um, so that's what people felt. Um, I've kind of not really answered your central question, which was which was more about um, the scapegoat, uh, the scapegoating of horror, I suppose. The scapegoating of horror, mm. yeah. Well, but, well, the constant thing with horror is that you can't persuade people to get it and enjoy it if they don't. That's what I always find. You know, I find it when I go to parties and people say, what kind of writer are you? And I take a deep breath and say horror writer because I'm not ashamed of saying that. And they look as if, you know, that someone's released a bad smell in the room. You know? yeah. um, and I want to keep saying I'm a horror writer because I want the genre to have um, a decent pedigree that it's proud of. And I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to seem ashamed of it. But, the, but if people are physiologically... Um, upset by watching certain things. I don't think you can persuade them that, that there's artistic merit in it. Mm. Um, um, you know, it's not a persuadable kind of argument. It's very difficult to justify in, in words. You either get it or you don't. Um, and of course, it does become a very easy kind of scapegoat from the kind of, you know, the child's play um, video and all the rest of it. You know, it's almost the first thing that the tabloids rummage for mm. some connect, some connection either with video games or video nasties to, to sort of um, blame the evils of the world on. Um, so I think it's a kind of knee-jerk reaction, to use another cliche. But um, um, 
it's kind of difficult to say to people who don't understand why on earth anyone would want to watch something that's going to scare them. It's difficult to persuade them that it's a kind of at all worthwhile activity, you know. So it's best to just um, gravitate towards people that get it in the first place, I think, in a way. Mm. Okay, well, we're talking about sort of gravitating to people because as a writer, you've kind of diversified between different media, haven't you? Because uh, you've written novels, you've written for television, you've also written screenplays, uh-huh. um, um, famously for William Friedkin and Ken Russell. Yeah. I just wanted to ask you about how how you look upon that kind of diversification and working with different working in different media but basically as a horror writer how how was how has um, it developed for you over the years um i think i always grew up no i didn't always grow i always grew up wanting to write movies mm. but i didn't think it was possible i mean how could you grow up you know 10 11 12 years old and think i'm going to write films with any kind of seriousness um but although i did used to watch films and see names coming up at the end and think well someone has to do that how great would it be to actually have a job where you're writing that stuff like the hammer films i used to watch in the early 70s that kind of thing i I thought that would be the best possible job in the world you know Mm. um but uh, I didn't think it was possible, but I thought it was a fantasy that I could indulge myself in, you know, so I started writing stuff. I'd write short stories. I'd write kind of putative screenplays while I was in college, that kind of thing, not really knowing what I was doing. Uh, and I eventually met an agent, and um, I had, um, you know, a radio play, maybe a stage play, half a novel, some short stories. Mm, mm-hmm. And he said, for God's sake, you've got to decide which of these you're interested in. <clears throat> because you can't possibly be become good in all of them at the same time. Um, he said, um, concentrate on one, and you can do all the others later on. And, I, and uh, he kind of jumped the question on me, which do you want to do? And I said, screenplays, mm. because essentially I thought my first love is cinema, really, more, more than the, the others. Um, um, and he said, right, well, forget all these other things, concentrate on that. So that's what I did. So before I really had any credits in tv i i'd um sold some screenplays uh and it's been really quite haphazard since then i mean in film and tv you know film and tv were kind of overlapped you know you have an agent that very few people writers in this country only do feature films i mean most of them do venture into tv projects at the same time yeah um movies are thin on the ground you know uh, as possibilities um but as for the kind of fiction side in terms of um you know uh, publishing that that was introduced to me fairly late on when i got to meet um some horror and uh, genre novelists that became very close friends of mine mm. and um i was invited to write in a couple of anthologies that kind of thing and i i found that the to begin with what attracted me was that uh, film and tv were takes so bloody long to happen and it's nothing to work on a film for five years and for it not to happen um or sometimes 10 years i'm not i'm not saying it's the only thing you do in 10 years but 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 you know they pay you and you do maybe 15 drafts and then it doesn't happen or it gets taken off you or you you know you move on to other things and nine out of ten things don't happen so and it's very even though it can be well paid it's very um destructive to the old ego sometimes mm. because mm-hmm. maybe only half a dozen people ever read that thing that you've put blood and sweat into in in film and tv 
Mm. Um, whereas um, I find that when I when I uh, write a short story for an anthology or or, or a novella, um, not only can I be completely focused on that, and the finished product will be exactly what I want, which is which is refreshing. But also, it will be it will be read by people. There it is. You can see it on your shelf. It's made in a way, and um, there it is. So it's it's in in that respect, it's kind of instant gratification. And you know, I think if you're a, if you're a storyteller, you can't sort of stop stop telling stories just because some stories get knocked back or don't get released. You, yeah. Water finds its level. You know, I, I'll seep through anywhere. It's <laughs> the possibility of telling stories, and and it is all storytelling in a way. I mean, I don't, um, you know, I could have a project with a, with a studio in America and a short story at the other end of my desk that I'm writing for someone and being paid ten pounds for it to go in an anthology, and they're both my children. You know, I don't love one child more than the other. Mm. <laughs> uh, I. I you know, some things take more work than the other, you know, physically and, and mentally. But sometimes, you know, the enjoyment and the, I think, the the heart that goes into a short story can be as much as you put into a, a screenplay, if not if not more. Mm. And so in, that, in that respect, they're the same. But obviously in the technical sense of how you work on them, they're, you know, they're very different. Yeah. Well, that was the next thing I wanted to ask you, really, was, you know, the technical differences that you found between writing screenplays and writing fiction, because Whitstable's, I think, your, lo- your longest piece so far, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and as somebody who's kind of started out writing screenplays and then, from well, my understanding is that you started with screenplays yeah. and then sort of branched yeah. out into fiction... Yeah. With, you know, often it's the opposite way around with other writers. So, so what kind of areas did you find? Did you find any areas particularly um, diffi- think, difficult uh, to develop? Uh, I think I found it freeing in a way. Yeah, uh, there are lots of voices you have to listen to, uh, and disciplines you have to take—not um, disciplines, but um, constraints. I think you have to be aware of when you're writing something for the screen. I mean, not just think, not just things like budget. Things like pace, things like um, uh, consistency of narrative. You don't don't jump around. You mm. don't have interior monologue. You don't have people sitting telling you a whole chunk of information. There are certain things you don't do in dramatic construction. But when when you tell a story in um, in fiction, um, you can how can I put this meander in a sense. Mm. In other words, if, if if the if the story wants to be told in a different way and wants to divert down a little tributary of reflection on something, um, then you let it. Because in a way, I've learned from friends of mine that that, that when you write um, fiction, more so I think than scripts, it's about finding the voice of the story, not mm. necessarily the voice of the protagonist telling you a first-person narrative, but nevertheless, even in a third-person narrative, there's a voice of the story. Um, that you listen to that enables you to create the flow of the story um, and that can be very enjoyable especially when it's you start to kind of uh, maybe break some of the narrative rules that you feel you might be constrained by if you're writing it as a screenplay I mean the, the thing for instance with a screenplay or especially television is the you have to be very specific time-wise mm. the running time for television is Specific down to what it used to be, forty-seven minutes for an ITV hour. It's probably less than that now. Um, 
so it has to be a exact certain number of pages you know and the and the commercial breaks have to come at a certain point um so that's part of the that's part of the paradigm you work to um but what i love about uh, especially um uh, about um Woodstable is just creating that voice and finding a sort of authenticity to it that kind of reveals things to you i think i i really believe that thing about not writing a story about something you know um write about something you don't know mm. um because it's a process of kind of finding out i mean not not information wise but uh, in terms of subject matter and theme um you know that's that's really what i like that's what you know i like to find at the heart of a story really okay so in terms of Whitstable, what what kind of drew you to to writing about Peter Cushing in that way? Was it some desire to kind of empathise with his situation? Um, I've always been a massive fan mm. of, of him as an actor because, yeah. I, as I said already, I grew up with those movies. And uh, it seemed to me, I think, that one of the reasons I fell in love with that whole genre and era of movies was his presence in the yeah. centre of them gave a kind of gravitas that meant... Uh, just, just enabled us to believe them, you know. Mm. Um, it, although in some respects I like Vincent Price, there was always a tongue-in-cheek element with Vincent Price. Yeah. Whereas, um, whereas I think the whole good versus evil of Hammer films were really kind of like almost kind of chiselled in stone by Peter Cushing's presence. You mm. know? I carried that. I carried that. Even even though he's been in some rotten films, he was never never less than a, a, a benevolent presence in them, I think. Um, and like I say, part, part of the reason I fell in love with, with the whole horror genre, well, he never called them horror. I think he called them fantasy. Yeah. He didn't like the thought. I mean, he always said, uh, as he does in, the, in, my, in my story, you know, he thought the concentration camps are horror. Sure, not the film, I sure. Think, you know. um, but um, so that so I kind of grew up with him as as a as a film star and a, and a kind of important one in in my mind. Um, and but the story only came about really, um, as sometimes stories do. They just I mean just the the scene popped into my head, which was um, Peter Cushing walking along the beach at Whitstable and he meets a little boy aged ten years old who thinks he's Van Helsing, mm. um, which is a simple start point to to a story and and it immediately struck me that it's my kind of area of someone mixing up fact and fiction um uh you know in a way ghost watch mixes up what's true what's in, what isn't true you know yeah, yeah. I keep, uh, you know and you know gothic that i wrote for ken russell mixes up what's true and not true so i kind of i kind of uh, i kind of like that area of 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 kind of commenting on genre by uh, adding something to a little spark of, sorry, taking some truth and adding a, an embellishment of untruth to it. Uh, and I immediately saw that I could have some kind of fun with this. And, and I think also in the same kind of moment, I knew that it had to be at that point where um, Peter Cushing had just been bereaved mm. uh, after his wife dying. So it had to be 1971. Yeah. And it had to be about a kind of, hiatus in his life, if you like, um, at which he's a kind of lost soul and had to occupy that space between being bereft 
and kind of getting back on the horse mm. of horror films. And I thought that's what appealed to me is this, how do you turn around from despair yeah. to into getting back on your feet? Um, and I said, uh, I, th- I think it was first thing in the morning, I said to my wife, I've had this idea about Peter Cushing, and a little boy comes up to him and says, I think you're Van Helsing, and I think my, my stepfather is a vampire. Mm. And she said, um, she said, but he isn't a vampire, is he? And I thought, you know what? You're right. That's much too straightforward. Mm. <laughs> because my first impulse was to make it a horror film, and then I thought, no, it's it's got to be truer than that. It's mm. got to be got to be true and then as soon as i knew it had to be about horror from real life yeah contrast to the horror of a hammer film that he's so brilliant at portraying the idea of someone who who does horror for a living being confronted by having to help someone faced by real horror then it started to have a real um vibrancy Mm. there and and then it kind of grew and grew into the form that you've read it well one of the lovely things about um about Whitstable, your your book is the way it does gi- give this sense of um, Cushing as a sort of genteel character who is somehow kind of out of time, or yeah, it kind of evokes kind of old, somewhat old-fashioned sort of values me- yeah, meeting yeah. these sort of modern-day values. It's funny. Uh, um, I mean, I I just tried to catch the, the the kind of character that I'd seen in footage, and I I obviously boned up on on. Um, a lot of research about him and watched um, clips and that kind of thing, and it did. It did strike me that he was that kind of um, that kind of character. Mm. I, I mean, I wasn't. I didn't. You know, I was. I was really being accurate to um, the, informa- the, the information that was coming in. I wasn't saying. I wasn't trying to say in the story. Oh, you know, I wasn't being reactionary. And I'm saying, oh, if only we went back to these old study mm. values, we'd be the world would be a greater place. And I, I think. I think if that comes across, it's kind of inc- incidental or accidental, really, mm. because um, I, I think that's just, just by nature of me trying to catch his character. Um, although I think he, inevitably um, he he would have, you know, I was amused by the thought that he would he would have his tweed suit from I Monster, <laughs> and yet he might be struggling with the new decimal currency when he buys a cabbage. You know, mm. I, and the things just amuse me to kind of play around with. You know. Um, and it seemed it it just seemed a world of kind of contrast once I got into it, and I kind of liked that about the uh, the way it emerged, really. Well, as you say, one of the lovely things about the story is that Cushing, by helping this boy, learns to help himself, which seems to be you know a very strong emotional backbone for a story, and it does have some fantastic scenes in it, and one of the most memorable, I think, is. The confrontation with the so-called vampire, the real-life yeah. monster yeah. in the cinema, which is actually showing—is it the vampire lovers? I think. Yeah, yeah. I actually was going to say the vampire lovers in the story, um, and then for some reason I thought it would be a little cooler just to not mention the name of the film. Mm. <laughs> Allow the, fa- the fans to think, figure it out. Exactly, yeah, because I think. I think you know if you if you st- if you start to think oh George Cole is in it and Ingrid Pitt and um, John Finch and he's pl- uh, Cushing's playing General Spielsdorf you know and I mean I mean it would take and anyway I, I acknowledge it in the, in the at the end of the book anyway but it just seemed it just seemed 
a little too on the nose to label it in the text, you know. But uh, anyway, you've got it. <laughs> well, was... But I'm glad you. I'm glad you like. I'm glad you liked that scene. It was. It was literally one of those things that I thought. Um, you know, he he wants to he wants to meet him. Where would they meet? Um, um, oh, let's have him meet in the cinema. That seems kind of symbolic of the whole story. Mm. And then, what would be in the cinema? Oh, you know. And then I thought, well, what if it's showing one of his films? I know it's kind of it sounds it's, it's a little bit forced, but I thought, uh, well, there would there might be one of his films around, and it turned out to be that one. And the more I again, the more I kind of played with it, the more the scenes in the film seemed to kind of be horribly relevant to what. To the to the horror that they're talking about sure. in a weird kind of way, so that was that was that was good fun to play with. I, th- I think the the scene punches very much into one of the themes of the book, which you've mentioned, which is uh, the idea of the gothic kind of colliding with real life horror. Uh, mm. You know, screen horror colliding with real life horror. But I also I also wanted to um, I, I also wanted to give the idea of this. Um, uh, the boy is fascinated by horror. You know, he, he he's he's immersed in horror and he knows his stuff. The little boy, um, and in a way, I wanted to convey that um, horror, in terms of the kind of horror and fantasy films that Cushing made, are, are a kind of um, are a kind of refuge for us when we're kids. And and that mysterious thing, why are monsters so fascinating to young kids? You know, what is the what is the What's the fascination? Um, and and I do think those films um, uh, it comes back to what you were asking about, uh, you know, saying about video nasties and the reaction to Ghost Watch. Why why do we those of us who love the genre? Why do we hold them so dear? Mm. Why do we? And I think it's I think it's because um, I think it's because those of us that love horror, we think the world is a fearful place, really, and we we want a kind of confirmation of that in the art that we. That, that we um, watch and, and read, um, because we don't want to feel we're alone, really. Mm. And I, I think, in a, in a sense, again, what I was attempting in the book is 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 the sense that this this middle-aged man and boy um, have a rapport through the kind of films that that he makes, because the symbolism of the kind of Hammer films and the sticking through the heart and that kind of thing, they are. They are about good and evil. They are about things that are in all our lives, um, often unpalatably so. But um, but maybe the watching of them and the making of them, you know, kind of kind of like forges a kind of territory that gives us a chance to explore them and have conversations about them um, in a way that's safe. You know. Yeah, I mean, obviously, with with the Cushing thing, there's the the whole kind of confrontation with bereavement and so on that mm. is evoked really it's very it's a very gripping tale but it's also a very moving tale thank you i'm delighted really delighted that you that you enjoyed it uh have you seen a film called targets i have and i was very conscious well, you were conscious yeah i wondered film. if you wanted to comment um, on that because it, it, i didn't i wasn't really conscious of it uh beginning to write it mm. Um, it occurred to me some way, some way along in it. So it wasn't like at the beginning a spot. Oh, you know, an old movie star, blah blah blah. But later on, I thought, ah, yes, that's a that's a terrific film. Uh, and another one that that um, perhaps echoes what I was aiming for was Gods and Monsters. Yeah, uh, which uh, again I loved. Which was 
about James Whale, who directed Frankenstein, but but it was a fictional version of 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 Whale. Mm. Um, so again, trying to get to the um, core of what the character was as a fictional character. Uh, I mean, I should point out, if if we have a few seconds to say this, that um, I don't want anyone to think this Peter Cushing is a definitive Peter Cushing. Everyone would write him differently, I'm sure, if they wrote a piece of fiction about him. This is the Peter Cushing that that I've written for this story. Um, and uh, it's very much a kind of fictionalized Peter Cushing, inevitably. Then again, I'd like it to be felt by people that uh, knew him and knew of him that it's authentic enough to, um, you know, be convincing. That was that. That's the main thing. And luck, luckily, I have had the input from you know people who've met him and written about him. People like David Perry, who wrote um, Heritage of Horror, and people like Jonathan Rigby, who wrote written about um, English Gothic cinema. Um, you know, and Wayne Kinsey, who's written a lot about Hammer and met a lot of the stars. Um, so I have had, you know, I needed to cover those bases and get feedback from people who knew that they felt it was, you know, as authentic as mm. possible um, for my own peace of mind. Well, the, the the book also has a lovely sense of place as well, doesn't it? Because Whitstable was very much, seems to be Cushing's home. Yeah. Kind of redolent, so. I mean, redolent of his personality in some some ways the sort of gentility yeah, of it. i mean i've always i've always loved kind of seaside places kind of off-season seaside places like ever since don't look now i think in a way there's <laughs> something very um maudlin about them i think or morose uh, i don't know yeah, why sure i think it's because you think of seasides being joyful and bright colors and that kind of thing and there's something more meditative uh, about off-season uh, places but we we only heard recently that we're going to be launching the book on the weekend of the Peter Cushing centenary, which is absolutely marvellous news, we're going to be launching it at Whitstable Museum. Oh, excellent! On the on the twenty fifth of uh, May, which is only the day before the centenary, so we're delighted to to do that, and uh, I couldn't be more kind of proud that it's worked out that uh, that we're going to be in Whitstable to launch the book. It sounds like the the perfect launch. Yeah. Will you be drinking across the road at the Peter Cushing pub afterwards? I, I think. I think we will, and that—that that, ironically, the Peter Cushing pub is is what used to be the Oxford Cinema, which uh, is the scene in the cinema in my book that we were talking about just now. So I should definitely go there. Friday night frights. Well, that's it for tonight's Friday night frights. But don't forget, you can reach me via the Starburst website or on Twitter at Starburst underscore Mag. Until next time, stay, stay scared. scared. You're amazing. Ha, ha, ha!